I once was told if you learn to preach to people's hurts, haunts, and their hunger, you will never lack for an audience. We all are human, just as the choir just sang, and when we are at our lowest, when we are at our most needy, we need to know that Jesus can be counted on. He will, just as the choir has sung, he will meet us there. But there is one more place, one more place I think we need him almost more than all the others when we are being tempted. You know what it's like during those lonely and vulnerable times when Satan is whispering lies to you. His smooth talking is trying to get you to give up on God and lean completely on yourself to think there's nobody else out there but you. Satan has a nasty way of convincing us all that sin is not all that bad. Doing God's will is not all that important. And all those things you've been told are wrong are really just fine. Don't worry about it. You can make it on your own. You've uh, heard his voice before I have. Here's, Here's how his voice sounds. Sometimes I use a nice English accent, but not today. I'll make it more. More serious. You've heard him say, I've been watching you. And don't think I've seen how you have sacrificed so much over the years in your marriage and your spouse hasn't even noticed. At least your co-worker appreciates you. Ask them out. What are a few drinks? Go ahead. You deserve it. Or he said this, you don't need to listen to that outdated and rigid rule book. You know the Bible. Why not forget about participating in that lame community you call the church? The people in there are so needy. They're so weak and they're a bunch of hypocrites. Believing in the man upstairs, oh, that's fine and dandy, but leave out all that superstitious mumbo-jumbo of religion, dedication, and devotion. Be devoted to your career. That's what matters. Be dedicated to your amusements and be religious about your hobbies because in the long run, that, my dear man, is what life is all about. Your joy. That's what it's about. It is here, right here, where Satan meets you. I call it ground zero, those shadowy moments of temptation, and that's where we need Jesus the most, honestly. Satan is at his wiliest, he's at his deadliest when we are at our weakest and most desperate. We need Jesus to fight for us, to protect us from spiritual defeat and what I would say is just soul destruction. That's what Satan wants. Jesus knows this battle well. Because he's already been there. He's already fought the fight, and he's already vanquished the foe on a lot of different occasions. But the most prominent we're going to see in Luke chapter 4, if you could turn there, verses 1 through 13. We're going to learn how to fight this battle of temptation. And so the title this morning is Tempted, Satan and His Nasty Game. We're going to see how he plays it, and we're going to learn how to win in that game. So that's Luke chapter 4, 1 through 13, if you could follow along. 
Verse 1, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, Huh, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me. I'll give it to whom I will, if you then will worship me. It will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. And he took him up to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands will they bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. For me, chapter 4 is when the book of Luke really gets going. I, I like the stories of his birth. I like the story of him being a of his childhood and his baptism, but I, ha I love watching Jesus in action as a man because it teaches me so much on how to live my life as an adult, as a man. And so before Jesus goes public, he is sent headlong into the wilderness for ministry preparation. The wilderness of the Judean desert is God's choice for Jesus' spiritual boot camp. It's his boot camp. It's his time to prepare for his earthly ministry. It's suffocating, it's stifling, it's hot, lonely, and dry. And his sparring partner, the devil himself. Verses 1 and 2 says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. I believe in a real devil. If you saw some posting, some, some people don't believe in the devil. The devil's real. He is a real being. And here Jesus is being tempted by him. It says, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was famished. He was hungry. Before we go into the actual temptation, I want you to consider two things based on the context of the story. I like, Ken, what you said about how God gives us stories to learn by. They're very tangible. And in a way that they happen in the Bible, there's similar patterns that happen in our own life. And there's two things I want you to notice. First of all, and this to me is shocking, God is responsible for leading him into the desert for the spiritual confrontation. Twice, Luke attributes Jesus' leading by the Spirit of God. This to me is shocking. I think there's a general belief in a church that the Holy Spirit only leads us into exciting moments of spiritual bliss. Spiritual highs, where he's all about just making us feel joy 
and return in praise. But that's not the case here. The Spirit purposely leads him into trouble. The Spirit leads him into real trouble. It's clear how it's written that God intended for Jesus to enter into this battle. He intended for him to face the tempter in the wilderness. One commentator even writes, the devil's role falls within the purpose of God. That's strange to me, but God has allowed Satan to trouble us for a purpose. In the same way, God God sometimes leads us in the wilderness to shape us, to prepare us for ministry. For Jesus, this temptation was 40 days of intense hunger, lies, battle. For us, 1 Peter 1.6 says, trials also come seasonally, periods of time to produce good in us, actually to refine our faith, to make us stronger in our belief and trust in God. God loves us perfectly, and sometimes His love knows that we need to be hurt and even haunted by the tempter himself. Why? So we'll be forced to run to Him. God, who is our only hope. I'll say that again. God loves us perfectly, and sometimes His love knows that we need to be hurt and even haunted by the tempter himself. So we'll run to God for our hope. Second thing I just want you to consider is this. When Satan attacks, he uses a two-pronged battle plan. He attacks us from two areas. He attacks us in a lot of areas, but I think he goes after these two because they're our weakest. Number one, when we are at our weakness physically. Look at the end of verse 2. When they were ended, meaning the 40 days, Jesus didn't eat anything. When they were ended, he was hungry. And at that moment, Satan comes in. He does exactly the same thing to us. As the saying goes, fatigue makes cowards of us all. I think it's true because Satan always has been attacking us at our lowest exhaustion point. I had a friend who realized that him and his mom used to argue an awful lot, but it was always late at night. They'd always argue. So in his mind, when he got married, he made a decision to not make major decisions or have heated arguments after 10 o'clock at night. Have you ever noticed that some of the worst decisions you've ever made, some of the harshest fights, some of the most addictive behaviors happen when it's late and you're the most tired? Satan knows when to attack you. Second area, I think he attacks us, and I've seen this time and time again, is when we have just begun to get serious with God, Jesus gets in the way. I mean, I'm sorry, Satan gets in the way. (laughs) Forgive me, Father, I know not what I do. Satan gets in the way. Man, is that bad, what I said. One writer says the devil sought to slip in during the unhindered communion of the Father with the Son for the purpose of disrupting the clear directive of the Father to the Son. So here is Jesus at the beginning, right before the beginning of his ministry, meeting with God, fasting, praying, and Satan interrupts that to try to clear and veer him off of course. You've probably heard that if Satan can't stop a person from getting saved, 
He will try his hardest to stop that person from being productive and fruitful in their Christian life. I've seen people get saved, but they've been driven to fanaticism. They have crazy theories. They just start judging people. If he can't stop you from getting saved, he'll keep pushing you to where you're kind of nuts. He usually does this right after a spiritual high of conversion. He tries to convince the new believer they've arrived. They've made it. You've done it. You're there. Often that new believer will think they can now make it on their own. Or they'll think they're smarter than the leadership that actually led them to Christ. 1 Timothy 3.6 warns about this. He says, do not let a new convert be a leader. Because often they fall into the trap of the devil. I call this the sophomoric mind. You know what a sophomore is? A sophomore is a person who went to school for a year and now he thinks he knows everything and now he's smarter than everybody. And really, he hasn't really learned anything yet. It's a sophomoric mind. Satan's a master at trapping that. So that's uh, two considerations. Now let's start getting into this whole idea of what is temptation. Let's define it. It begins in verse 2. And for 40 days it says Jesus was tempted by the devil. Jesus went head-to-head with the actual angel, the demonic angel, the top dog angel. You can ask this question, was this temptation even a fair battle? Was it fair? Is this dualism? Good versus evil? Well, you've got to think of it like this. It's the creator versus the creature. So Jesus made Satan, so there's not even a chance Satan in this battle. There's a theological word that says Jesus is impeccable, meaning he is perfect in his holiness. He will never look at sin. He can't look at sin, so there's zero possibility that he'd even give in to sin and temptation. Well, then the person would counter. So then, how can this be considered actual temptation? Normal argument says that temptation is something that is truly tempting, must always include possibility of failure so you'll have people say well maybe jesus wasn't impeccable well james 1:13 says god can't be tempted by evil so jesus in his nature couldn't sin not only couldn't he sin but satan had no chance against him he's talking to god we have to get that straight he's talking to god so when satan's attacking us and we call on jesus we're not calling on an equal you know, sparring partner, we're calling on God. That's why it says, call on God and Satan will flee. So then, was it real then, that temptation? Absolutely, because the word temptation in this passage means to test in order to assess, to test something in order to assess its character, its strength. Put it like this, you know, you can take a ball, the whole situation here of Jesus being confronted to, uh, with the devil was to devil was squeezing him to see what he was made of. That's what this word temptation means, is outward pressure to see what's on the inside. Squeezing. It was brought about through his lies and half-truths, his enticements. And so in his humanity, yes, Jesus suffered, but as God, he's faultless. So his victory means we have hope in the middle of our temptation. Hebrews 2.18 says 
because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help you. He's able to help those who are being tempted. He knows us. He knows what the flesh feels, this body. So he's here to help us. And he's God, so he'll win every time. So let's say generally speaking about temptation, I'll talk about it generally how it operates, and then I'll talk about it specifically how it operates. The definition is to test in order to assess. Now we'll talk about generally there's two areas temptation's trying to provoke us in. The first one, it's doubt asking me, just bombarding me all the time with, can I trust God's word? Can I? Can I stand on it? Look at verse 3 and 9. Verse 3 says, the devil comes to Jesus. And he says it like this. If you are the Son of God. Verse 9. If you are the Son of God. Do you know what happened 40 days right before this? Jesus got baptized. What did God say out of heaven? You are my Son. Satan comes 40 days later. If you are the Son. Come on. He always is trying to doubt God's word. In a way, he, he is painting reality for us. Satan's trying to twist reality. It's exactly what happened in that notorious case in the garden with Adam. The very first thing he asked him in Genesis 3.1, did God actually say, if you eat, you die? Did he? Come on. He's still using the same garbage on us all the time. Did God actually say sex before marriage is a sin? Did he? Did God actually say marriage is between a man and a woman? Did God actually distinguish between a man and a woman? Did God actually care if you're a man and you act like a woman? Does God's word even matter anymore? He's always getting us to doubt his design, which is fully displayed in his word. His word gives us a perfect representation of reality as it is. Satan wants to skew it and warp it and pervert it. And he's great at it. And then what he's doing through that is he's wanting us to wonder about God himself. Can I trust the heart of God? In other words, is God really good? Will he take care of me or am I on my own? Do I got to figure it out myself? This confrontation with the devil, what we're going to see when we get into the specifics, is he's going always going after the character of God. Always. As if God is not really coming through for Jesus. Not really coming through for you. He attacks God's character. And so what Jesus does is he goes to Exodus Deuteronomy, and he's actually going to refer back to Israel's failure in the desert when they didn't trust the heart of God. That's why they sinned. We're going to see in Exodus 17 too, the people were thirsty. So they grumbled against Moses and God which caused Moses to cry to God, what shall I do with this people? They're always, they're always complaining. They don't have enough food, enough water. Man, I'm sick of this. It's what they're doing is they're complaining about God's character. He's the one that did this to me. Real temptation is directed at our view of God. Satan lies to us with deeply probing questions. Do you really think God's going to rescue you? That's, that's the heartbeat of, that, and generally speaking, that's the heartbeat of temptation. Now let's get into specifics. Let's see how he actually does this. 
Let's see how he actually squeezes you. In what areas does he take you and squeeze you? The first one we find in verses 3 and 4. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus is hungry. He's squeezing and he's going after his natural desires. He's squeezing Jesus in the area of natural desires. He wants Jesus to satisfy those desires, however, in an ungodly way. He wants him to take a stone and make it into bread. Jesus could do that. He knows Jesus could do that. He knows Jesus is hungry because he's going through this 40 days of fasting. So he wanted him to use his supernatural power to override what God's will was for Jesus at that time. Jesus understands this in verse 4. He answers, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone. What he's saying is he's trusting the word of God. He's quoting Old Testament scripture, trusting God's word and his will. He's waiting on God. But this attack of human desire, 1 John 2.16 calls the desire of the flesh. It's the worldliness in the area of desire of the flesh. We call it sensualism. Mmm. What my taste, my sight, my touch wants right now. Sensualism. Sensualism is satisfying your cravings in the wrong way. That's what it is. They derive from the lie, and here's the lie. It goes to God's character. He's keeping something good away from you. It's lying about God again. He's not going to give you that because he doesn't want you to have a good life. He wants your life to be miserable. It is when hunger becomes gluttony, thirst becomes drunkenness, sex becomes perversion, exercise becomes obsession. Satan makes you believe that by indulging your desires, you are doing nothing more than exercising your freedom. And God wants to take away your freedom. Go ahead. Enter into your craving. It's a masterful lie. But he's doubting God's heart. God's holding it back from you. This is not freedom, nor is it grace. Here's how I would say it. You want to know what true grace is? True grace is not freedom and independence from God, but rather it's having a heart that desires pleasing Him above all things. Dependence. True freedom. Two freedoms called is found in dependence on God. Ask an alcoholic or an addict. Just ask an alcoholic or an addict. The ability to say no is when they are set free. It's not taking another drink. It's not getting another oxycodone pill. It's when you can say no that you're set free. Ask an obese person. Is eating anytime you want, as much as you want, truly liberation? Or is it bondage? Somebody's saying temptation is that chocolate cake. Yeah, but no, no, no. The, the freedom of is saying no in that chocolate cake. It's good. It's not bad. It's good. That chocolate's made by God. That's a good thing. Satan wants you to keep eating the whole cake. That's freedom. No, it's not. You know what it's like in the morning. You step on the scale. That's not freedom. It's just not. He's a master at having you doubt God's goodness. Second thing we find in verse 5 through 8. Verse 5, and the devil took him up, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. 
He's got some kind of power, I'll tell you. And he said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it's been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. And he's going after Jesus' pride. To you I'm going to give this to. I'm not going to give anybody else. I'm going to give it to you. And then he says, if then you'll worship me, it'll be all yours. This is an issue of squeezing a person in their area of pride, making them think they are just better. Pride causes you to think you can order your life better than God. Pride really makes you think you have the right to control everyone and everything around you because you just know better. But pride poisons the heart. It's bad. It's bad. And Satan, so he's coming to Jesus, offering him an earthly kingdom. But did you know God already promised that to him? Psalm 2 says you're going to inherit the whole earth. My son will. But Satan's coming to him. But he's going to give it to him now. Was Satan bluffing is the big question. Did he have the right to do that? Some scholars say, not really, because it was already in God's control. Some people think, yeah, when Satan sinned in the garden, God gave him kind of headship over humanity. 1 John 5.19 says he rules the cosmos. So, but I don't know. I don't think the answer is that. I think the answer is either way, he was offering something to Jesus that God already promised without having to wait for it. Let me say that again. He's offering Jesus something God already promised, but without having to wait for it in the right time. Because pride, I can do it my way. I can have it my terms. It's mine. And so if he could convince Jesus to want it, he would be beholden to Satan in a way he's trying to buy Jesus off. But this wasn't God's will for him. Jesus understood that. That's why in verse 7 he said, It's written, you shall worship the Lord your God. Serve him only. Trust him. That's what he means is trust him. For me, one of the clearest ways I can tell Satan is behind things is when he convinces people not to wait. You're always in crisis mode. i got to make a decision now. If I don't make a decision now, the world's going to implode. That's Satan's time frame. God's time frame's long because he's working all things together for your good. God wants you to wait. Satan is working now. We wait so when his, God's will is ready, everybody's blessed. But Satan's a wrecker. He knows by pushing people to force things and demand his promises now, major damage to his design will be inevitable. I remember as a little kid, I used to watch these old, old cartoons that were made in the 40s or 50s. They'd one like Porky Pig. I don't, I'll never forget this. It was weird. It just sticks in my mind. It was, I'd usually watch when I came home from school. My mom would give me probably a little bag of Fritos. I'd sit, turn on the cartoons, and there was this one where, I think it was Porky Pig. I'm not sure, but he was really hungry for an apple, but the apples were green, and this little devil came and took an apple and spray-painted it red and put in a basket of red apples, and he bought it, and he ate these red apples, but they weren't ripe yet, and so his belly was rotten. And I remember worrying, am I going to eat rotten apples? I don't know, it's weird. I have a weird mind. But that's what Satan does. He takes God's will and paints it. 
He tempts a young couple to have sex before they say I do. He lures people to go into debt to get that car they always wanted. He lies to the student in the classroom and tells him cheating on the test is just as good as studying. Satan is a master of false substitutes. He makes the fool's gold sparkle and paints the prostitute to look like a chaste bride. That's why 1 John 2.16 calls this temptation the desire of the eyes. I see it, I want it, and I want it now. It's desire of the eyes. He's a master at that. But you know, again, what it's doubting? It's doubting God's heart, that God's timetable is good. That's right. We don't want to wait on God because we know better. We know better. The third one, verses 9 through 12. This is a strange one. This is a tough one to discern. I'll read through it, and then I'll give you what I think from some of the research, what I think is happening. Look at uh, verse 9. He took him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple. That means he took him, somehow Satan was able through a vision to take Jesus to the pinnacle of a temple in Jerusalem, which is God's highest place of worship. He said to him, if you're the son of God, Throw yourself down from here, for it's written, it's written. He'll commend his angels concerning you to guard you. This is Psalm 91. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered and said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So what's going on? Uh, some people think that Satan is making God prove that he's trustworthy. Okay, he promised you, let's see if he's coming, going to come through. I, I can see that. Others think Satan's mocking God's promises, like, Oh, yeah, right. He's going he's gonna to protect you. Come on. But there's one more way, I think, to understand it. Leon Morris writes in his commentary, pressuring God to do the spectacular, presuming on God, making him come to Jesus' aid now instead of walking humbly with him. In other words, Satan was baiting Jesus to ask God for special treatment. He, he's going, it's kind of a sidebar to pride, but saying, you deserve more than you're getting and God will give it to you because you're just a little better. You deserve special treatment. God will come to your beck and call. He's your butler. D.A. Carson said, Satan was misusing the Scripture. Psalm 91 does not promise the Lord will rescue a believer from all danger, especially when a person presumptuously manufactures a problem to display how much God loves them. But what Psalm 91 does say is God will supply supernatural aid when it's necessary. Satan was baiting Jesus to ask for special treatment. By special treatment, the temptation is to believe that God's role is to always keep you out of harm and to bless you in special ways. You're special. You're special and unique because you're God's. You deserve to have things better. You deserve to have your prayers answered now. You deserve to ask for health and wealth, and you should get it now because you're a little bit better than others. 1 John 2.16 says there's one more temptation called the pride of life or egotism. What is egotism? Life's about me. It's about my glory and my comfort and happiness now. It's about me. I'm the center. I would be lifted up. I should have the resurrected life now. Forget about the humility and the suffering of the cross. The presumption on God is wanting the resurrection without the cross. 
Have you ever met Christians that think they're just a little bit more special and better? God always gives them the vision, word of knowledge. They have this temptation that they deserve it. What if God doesn't come through? Well, he's to be blamed. It is the Hebrews in the wilderness demanding water, manna, meat, deliverance now. And if he does, they don't get it now, they're going to stomp back to Egypt where they did have it better outside of God. And so the question is, does Satan make you believe you deserve special treatment? Are you better than others? Do you think everyone else in the church is a hypocrite and you aren't? Like when you look around, man, I look at all these slackers. They're not as godly as me. He loves to make you feel privileged. And when you do, you are in danger. I think really what God calls us to is humility. And humility is willing to accept whatever God gives me. Humility is not treat, it's treating other people better than myself. Humility is waiting, is really what it is. I love how this passage ends. Look how this passage ends in verse 13. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. What this means is that Jesus stood strong. He passed the test. He was ready for ministry. He knew two things. And this is like, it's like instead of squeezing, like you can't squeeze Jesus. Like he's, you can't squeeze him because he knows two things. He knows number one. He knows God's word. Like, by knowing, it's true to him. He just knows it's true. Everything about it is rock solid, and he puts his life on it. Every answer he gave Satan was from God's word. Everyone. Actually, Jared Doty heard this preacher say one time, he, he was quote, he said, one preacher said, if, if, we had to fight Satan by quoting the book of Deuteronomy. I think we'd all be in trouble. <laughs> but the point is, he knew God's word. The second thing is, he waited on God at the right time. Trusted God's heart. So he waited. He waited for the perfect fulfillment the promises given to him. You know, like, I think of it like this. If Jesus would have taken the bait, specifically the second one, I think the second one would have been the most tempting. If you just worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. I, I think that'd be tempting because Jesus could right all the wrongs. He'd get rid of all the bad leaders, get rid of Herod and Caesar. Could have took care of his people. But he would have got there without having to die for our sins. So we all would have been lost. I think a lot of people want heaven, but they don't want salvation. They want, the, they want the fruit of heaven without having what's inside of you, the character qualities of heaven. James 4, 7 and 8 says, Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. I draw near to God by seeing his word and his heart is trustworthy. I trust him. That is what faith is all about. Faith says, I believe that God exists, meaning that he's good, he really is good, and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. A reward is that he will fulfill his promises. You can trust his word. That's what faith is. 
And that's what temptation goes after to destroy that. This past week was a, I, I think I drank too much coffee before I went to bed. That might have been one of the big problems, but I could not sleep. I tossed and turned. I mean, I was up all night. I was all up all night praying. I, everything started rushing to my mind, and I, I just felt isolated and, and a failure. And um, it's just one of those midnight wrestling matches, and I just opened the Bible, and this I was reading some psalms, and this verse just stuck with me. It's Psalm 56, 8. I love it. It's so simple. Here's what it says. You have kept count of my tossings, which means my, when I'm tossing in bed, you've kept count of them. You put my tears in a bottle. Are they not in your book? You know what that says? That the God, Almighty God from heaven, knows me so much that he has kept track of everything I am dealing with. I'm not alone. I am not alone. And in that, I'm telling you, I fell right asleep. Because I know, regardless, he cares. He really cares about me. I think that's the answer to temptation. I am not alone. And he cares about me. So the question for you is, do you really believe that? If you don't, you're in trouble with the lies that will spin in your head. They won't stop. That, that stomach, pity your stomach, it never stops churning because you're not sure. But when you know, you can rest in him, throw things to him. And like First Peter says, cast all your cares on him. He cares for you. Let's pray. Father, I, uh, I know there's people in here that temptation is bad. Like it, It's not just bad from the fear, but it's when fear overwhelms them, they give up on you and they just take life in their own hands. Satan wins. I pray two things. You're, you, you gave us the, the Our Father. And it says... Um, Father, deliver us from evil. Deliver us from evil. So when that temptation comes our way, Lord, you give us a way out. You promise that. And also, Father, the Lord's Prayer asks us to stop, stop the tempter. Stop Satan. Stop him, Father. Come to our aid and sustain us and help us to stand strong on your word and to trust your heart. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.